0: You know, we have an enemy, and we never purport that we are rescued from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In fact, if we are getting on the devil's case, he's going to get on ours. It's going to happen. And that's going to come in many ways. We know that his, his design is to wear out the saints, wear out your faith, wear out your joy, wear out your love. Wear out your strength and your resolve, your conviction. So don't let him wear you out. And we're not going to replenish those reserves of grace except by staying connected to God in the spirit and connected to each other, which Peter called the stewards of the manifold grace of God. Brother Nathan, you use the word consolidate. Today, That was the word that the Lord sent you to New Zealand with. I didn't know that. And I, I told a brother. brother called me from out of town this morning. And I said, we are not living in the time of fragmentation. We are living in the time of consolidation. Amen. If you've been tempted to say, I remember a time in the church's history when we had Greater faith than we have now, but maybe this is what we should accept. I want you to know that's not God's will. We're going from faith to faith and glory to glory. We're being perfected into the likeness of His Son. And we've stumbled, and at times we've lost ground, but we're never giving up. And He's gonna bring us through and take us to the heights we were at before and so much higher. Thank you, Jesus. As I brought the message of an alternative culture to a diverse group, some who were hostile there in India, a kind lady who was interested, PhD, who's going to visit us soon enough, she raised her hand and she said, I want you to tell me how your community is going to be different from all the rest. Because communities start with the first generation on fire and by the second and third generation it has devolved into the works of man. My prayer, paraphrase, but this is what she asked. And with all honesty I could say to her, our third generation is more on fire than our second generation. Go to the youth meetings. Go to the prayer meetings that the youth are having. And be provoked to jealousy. But also be encouraged. This is not the age of fragmentation. This is the season of consolidation. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus spoke something about the church that he didn't speak about you or me. He spoke something about the church that he didn't speak about anything else. He gave us a guarantee That the church has the distinction of being the sole entity with a guarantee from God that it shall prevail against the power of hell. Amen? The individual does not enjoy that guarantee. The family does not enjoy that guarantee. But when Jesus perceived In the present and the future, the power and authority, the gates of hell. He said that he was building a fortress upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And by this we can understand that the church is not that which carries the label Church, but the church is that which Christ builds. Upon this rock I will build. This does not mean that God does not use people to build, but it means that He is the architect and He is the builder, whose architect and builder is God. This church is called the city, this church is called the temple, this church is called the body of Christ. And Brother Howard started us off by telling us what happened to this entity called the church when it began to adopt not the activity and construction and design of the architect and builder who is God but that of man. Everything that went wrong with the church happened as it it replaced the pattern's from above with the patterns from below, the order from above with the order from below. And that dynamic is still at work in the thing called the church today. We want to make it a democracy or we want to make it any number of political systems. That's what the Constantinian church was. The first one to be called Pontifus Maximus was not the Archbishop of Rome with a funny hat, but it was Caesar. That was the proper name for the Roman Caesar, Pontifus Maximus, as if he were somebody's big, great father. Amen. And the church just cut and pasted every bit of of government from the Roman system right into the church. There's nothing left that God has built. But we want to be part of that church that upon this rock I will build, that church that he is building. And we know that there are two broad categories of wisdom, two broad categories or sources for design. One is from below, and one is from above. And Jesus, in his seminal prayer that he gives to us, he says, our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. So he starts by telling us that God is above us and that he comes from on high. Our Father who art in heaven, orienting us to look upward, not outward and not downward. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this idea that God has the pattern, He has the model, He has the fullness in heaven, but He wants to mirror it here on earth. And this is what He means when He says, "'Whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven.'" I know that that's rendered differently, but that's the best rendering of it, I would contend. And what he means by that is that ministry is going to become an accurate mirror showing to earth realities extant in heaven. This is what Brother Howard is speaking of when he says he and Brother Blair would talk and they would say, let's wait until we get the mind of God. There's this sense, Paul said, we have the mind of God, the mind of Christ. He said no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But we have the mind of Christ. He's given us His spirit so that we can start to get a reflection of what's going on in heaven and see it here on earth. And this is what he means when he says, I saw Jerusalem, the city, the holy city, descending from God out of heaven. This means that the church is supposed to receive her patterns by revelation from God, not by conclusion and machination from below from man. And that's why we've got to be oriented upward always. In our prayers, in our aspirations, in our dreams, in our vision for the future, we've got to turn ourselves, we've got to turn our eyes upward and say, Lord, would you reveal it? Everything that man builds, he builds by his own cunning. Everything that God builds on earth is merely him reflecting to earth a reality that is extant in heaven. James talks about this when he talks about two kinds of wisdom. And we know that Proverbs says, wisdom builds the house, doesn't it? So he says, there's two kinds of wisdom. And by this, we could infer that two kinds of houses are being built. He said, there's the wisdom that is from below, that is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And there is the wisdom from above, that is first peaceable. It comes from above. It's willing to yield. Amen. Praise you, God. And he says that if anyone lacks this wisdom, it can be remedied through prayer. So whatever this wisdom is, it's not simply strategy. Can you agree with that? It's not simply strategy. We can see this divine wisdom coming into action through the steps of the four leopards. The four lepers, you don't read the story and say, well, they were more strategic and cunning than anybody else. There's something kind of childlike about this wisdom, isn't there? If we sit here, we die. So even if there's a 0.1% chance that we don't die moving forward, that's better than the 100% chance that we do die sitting still. So... Let's move forward. And they step out and God's wisdom, God's purpose is amplified through their efforts. This is the wisdom of God and it's called the foolishness of man. It's foolishness. It says God chose to bring his wisdom through the foolishness of preaching. And he says the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews So the wisdom of God that we can ask for and get is not something that is just, okay, I'm much smarter now. Instead, the wisdom of God feels like, I think I can feel his spirit now. And I think I can discern whether he is gracing this decision or not. That's more what the wisdom of God feels like. It doesn't overcome our dependence. It doesn't negate our weakness in the flesh. Wisdom doesn't feel like, got it, got it. Never mind, I've got it. That's not what the wisdom from above feels like. The wisdom from above feels like, I think I feel the Spirit leading us in this direction. And I'm more dependent than I've ever been. And I have need of greater faith than I've ever exercised. But I do feel the Spirit beckoning me in this direction. And this is what we need. One of the things that somebody stood up and said is, they said, I'm not sure what to think about the idea of people coming together. Because that just seems like the activity of man. Um, It seems like God's plan for the church is to scatter it. And that's where it really does the witness. There was somebody who once called himself our brother. And he said, this work needs to be scattered. And maybe God will use me, and he meant by through persecution and lies, to accomplish that work. We can all read Acts 8 and know that God redeemed the persecution and used it for his glory. Amen? But would you say that that is Christ's seminal design for the people of God at this time to break them apart? If there is something coming together, just scatter it so that it can serve my purpose. Is that God's seminal design for our time? What did Paul say in Ephesians 2? You all are being built together to form a holy temple where the Lord lives by his spirit. So God's activity is to build together. And the devil's activity is to scatter. And if the devil does scatter us, can God redeem that scattering and start to build together wherever we're scattered? Well, sure he can. But his design is not scattering. His design is building together. And somebody says, say to me, well, look... Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served God's purpose in Babylon. And I'll say, Amen. Amen. But why were the people of Israel in Babylon? Was that the favor and the design and the composition of God? Or was that the judgment of God? It was the judgment of God. And He's so wise and patient and loving That even in our judgment, even in our punishment, He can make us His witnesses. He can advance His purpose. But He does not design to send us to Babylon. He designs to use Babylon to bring us back to Jerusalem, having shed everything of Babylon that was with us before we left. And so we have to ask ourselves... Were there seasons throughout history where God advanced His witness through a church that was deeply hybridized with the state? Yes! Yes, yes, yes! Praise God for how He used Christianity in this country specifically. Praise God for how it even helped to balance the creation of this government and how that government has granted us peace unlike we've ever seen in history. Praise God for it, amen? But was that his design? Or was that him redeeming a church in disarray, a church in judgment? The great synthesis, the great marriage, came at the time of Constantine. Did God never use the church after the days of Constantine? No, he did. He used the church. But it wasn't according to his ideal design. It was him redeeming a total mess that we had made. Thank you, Jesus. And he used it as the rod of his wrath, not as his rod and staff which comfort us. What did the Lord say when the children of Israel chose a king and asked for a king? He said, you have rejected me, the Lord, from being king over you. This is a bad move. Can we all agree? Does that mean that there was no purpose of God advancing through Israel from the days of Saul until Jesus? No. He helped him choose the king, even though the choice was wrong to begin with. So God is willing to bear with us. And God is willing to help us. And he's willing to go with us into Babylon for 70 years. And he's willing to help shut the mouths of the lions for those who who turn their hearts and lives toward him. And he's willing to give us favor in the fiery furnace for those who will not bow to the gods of Babylon. But his ultimate plan is contained in the promise that I will bring you back. And his ultimate plan kicks back into gear when he says, come out, leave Babylon, go forth, rebuild Jerusalem. And the purpose for Jerusalem, this city compacted, was not to exclude all the peoples of the earth, but that the mountain of the Lord's house should be exalted and become the praise of the whole earth. His purpose in calling His people together is not to exclude those who are left in Babylon, but to raise up a light that will shine even into the darkest alleys of Babylon and remind the Jews that they have a homeland and a place, a house where they can be fit together like lively stones to form a spiritual temple where God lives by His Spirit. And so the question is not whether we should be content for a season in Babylon. I think the Wesley's lived at a time when there was required some contentment in this confusion. I think our forefathers, according to the Spirit, lived at various seasons where God allowed them to be content in Babylon even while they chafed under its hostile environment. Roger Williams and so many throughout the ages. Amen? But we are told in the book of Revelations in the 18th chapter that at the end of time, That the last day church is going to hear a voice from heaven saying, your time of exile is over! Your time of assimilation is done! Come out of her, my people! Lest you receive of her plagues and partake of her sins! Come out! Come out! There's no geographical place today called Babylon. But Babylon simply describes That first place, Babel, in Genesis 11, where man tried to take the place of God. And so it describes that society where through science and brute force, man has elevated himself to the place that historically could only be described to deities. And the church is all mixed up in this. So the question is not whether God is calling us into Babylon Or rather, the question is not whether God could ever call us into Babylon. The question is, what is he saying right now? The question is not whether we could ever serve a redeeming purpose if we were in Babylon. The question is, are you trying to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when God is looking for Nehemiah? Are you trying to be Daniel and have your big visions when God is looking for Ezra? Daniel was just right for the time of Daniel. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were just what God wanted for the season in which they lived. But have we moved into that final epoch and season where a voice comes from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. If you try to stay in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar... When the wrong king is taking the throne and God is doing something in Jerusalem, you're going to die. You're going to perish. You're not going to make it. The theme of faith and salvation from Abraham to Moses, from Nehemiah to Jesus, all the way to Revelations, is Exodus. And somebody says to me, but I can't. I can't have five acres and a cow." The exodus happens in the mind and the heart first. That's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let the exodus take place in your values. How many of you know that value and treasure mean the same thing? Where your treasure is, where your values are, there your heart will be also. you got to look at the values you have been raised in in babylon and make the exodus in your heart and mind first and then god will show you if there are steps to be taken in the flesh thank you jesus if babylon's not a place then we can't leave it with a step we got to leave it with a revelation we got to leave it with a transformation of the mind we got to leave it with a heart change we got to leave it with a recovery of faith, a recovery of truth, a conviction that comes from God. And if the Lord has caused you to live in a time where we're trying to build, where he's trying to build his church, and you are talking about the good old days of Shadrach and Daniel, amen, you're going to stay behind in Babylon and you're going to miss out on the only thing that matters under the sun and that is build your church, build your church build it on the rock Lord, build your church and that's the age we're living in and if you got another interpretation of prophecy we'll live by it but that's the one that we have the signs of the times the song says are appearing everywhere Jesus said you know how to read the clouds but you don't know how to read the signs of the times we do We do know how. We just have such an attachment to Babylon that we're afraid to read what the signs are clearly telling us. Storm clouds are on the horizon. Lightning is flashing from the east to the west. Everything is starting to shake. The trees are bending against new winds and Christians are burying their head in a pillow and saying Jesus has it all under control. Well, Jesus is calling you out. And the only reason you can't acknowledge that a storm is about to break in this country is because you are in love with your position in Babylon. And you're afraid if you recognize the times, it's going to eject you from your status quo, from your comfort zone. God, get us out in Jesus' name. I want to just assert something. And if you'll read it, you'll get it in the first chapters of the book of First Corinthians, Paul is talking about divisions, right? Everybody agree? And he's saying, you're going for this guy and you're going for that guy and you're saying, I'm of this one and I'm of that one. It seems like all the guys they were going for were actually in unity but they were trying to create differences and schisms amongst themselves. Amen? And he kind of culminates his whole point by saying in the fifth, uh, 14th and 15th Uh, Verses of chapter 3 he says don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you now notice what he says don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God there's a sense in which you're an individual temple but not in an ultimate sense he says don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God So let me just break down that sentence. Don't you realize that all of you not together are no longer the temple of God? And you tell me if that's not what Paul is saying when he says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? and It's a plural you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. What temple? The all of you together temple. Can everybody say, all of, you together? all of you together? That's the temple that we can't destroy. This is a pretty strong term, isn't it? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. What temple? All of you together temple. This is the design. This is the intent of God from all the ages past is to bring together a new Eden, a new paradise, not of plants and water, not of sunshine and raindrops on leaves, but of people loving and trusting and helping and serving each other and allowing the presence and glory of God to live there. The temple in Jerusalem was merely a type It was merely God's quick sketch illustration to show us how pieces come together. And if brought together according to pattern, glory results such that no man can enter. And that's what we're supposed to be. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that God through His Spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. So His whole point... In 1 Corinthians, to end the schism is to stop breaking the house apart. Have you ever seen somebody doing something to a fence that you built? Like maybe standing on the barbed wire rung. And you said, stop that. Don't do that. That fence took a long time to build. Paul is a wise master builder. We know the only real builder is God. But God used his apostolic gifting to bring things together according to a wisdom design. Amen? And he sees people leaning on certain stones, and the building is starting to go like this. And what he sees is that these factions are creating cracks in a house where God was going to dwell by his spirit. And he's pretty sharp. He says, if you're successful, God's going to destroy you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you together are that temple. Stop deceiving yourself. If you think you are wise, you need to become a fool to truly be wise. So whatever the destructive mechanism was, it was a kind of wisdom. What's going to try to destroy what God is doing in this place? It's a kind of wisdom. It's a certain kind of seeing through. Yeah, we've learned better than that. It's a certain kind of wisdom, isn't it? Stop deceiving yourself. He says stop destroying, stop deceiving. If you think you're wise, by the world's standards, you need to become a fool to truly be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God and the scripture says he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. The wise are caught in their own craftiness, amen? God is trying to build something together and we have to keep in our minds that the dynamic of salvation is a force that is pulling us toward each other. And that the dynamic of destruction and judgment is a centrifugal force that is trying to spin us apart. Stop deceiving yourself. And the mechanism that tears us apart is a kind of wisdom. It's just not the wisdom that is from above. It is a wisdom that is learned from the world. John said... If we spoke from the viewpoint of the world, the world listens to us. But we do not speak from the viewpoint of the world. We speak from the viewpoint of Christ. Oh God, the world and all its systems are coming to nothing, Peter said. The world and all its works are going to be destroyed and burnt with a fervent heat. Give me democracy, it's going to fail. Give me the republic, it's going to fail. Give me the education system, like a ziggurat ascending to heaven, showing man that he's like a God. It's going to fail. Give me science and power and the ability to predict earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and COVID and not so much. And it's going to fail. But upon this rock, I'll build my church. And it's the only thing that's not going to fail. And you say, well, I've been part of churches that failed. No, they weren't churches. No, they weren't churches. Churches are only those things that are built together by God. And you know when God is lifting and setting the stones and when man is doing it. He says that by speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. Not by the plans of man, not by the cunning of man, not by the traditions of man, but by speaking the truth in love. He says, in him the whole building is joined together. Joined and knit together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. He says... You have lost connection to the head from whom the whole body is supported and knit together by joints and ligaments grows as God causes it to grow. He says as lively stones, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you want to be part of that house? That's the only house that's going to survive. My dad, even when he was bedridden, But long before, he would say to us, You need to have an ear for God because of what is coming in the future. And he would say, We need to have the miraculous discernment. We need to have supernatural prophetic vision. We need to know the voice of God and where it's leading the church. We don't need all of the fortifications of the flesh. He said, we're going to need the gifts of Moses when the Red Sea dried into two walls, split into two walls, and the children of Israel passed through. That's the kind of gifting. That's the kind of obedience to the Spirit. You see, as the world gets more clever, we don't get more clever still. As the world gets more clever, we get more obedient and more tuned into the Spirit still. Thank You, Jesus. We change the way we pray. We change the way we listen. We change the way we worship. We orient our entire existence around the appearance, the sound of the voice of God. Whether He speaks through this one or that one, in this way or that way, through a bush through a donkey, through a man, through a woman, through a child, through a scripture, we orient our entire existence around this miracle of God's voice. And that's the big wisdom. It's just dependence on the Spirit. God has given us a new grace. And He's given us such incredible patterns. He's given us such incredible revelation. I think sometimes that God's greatest treasures, jewels, riches of revelation are locked in a box that can only be opened with a certain combination of humility, brokenness, faith, dependence, faithfulness. And I wonder sometimes, God, why have you hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes? And I sense that there has to be this combination. And we know that one from whom much of that came is no longer with us. He's beyond the accusations, the scoffings. He's beyond the lies. He's beyond the reach of the enemy once and for all. But God put together a unique group of people. Him and so many others. Whose history, whose brokenness, whose pain created just the right combination for the locks to spring on the treasure box of God's hidden wisdom. And it is incumbent upon us And it will always be incumbent upon us to make full the vision and the faith that was handed down to us. That's our mission. And we know that sometimes we've had the right vision, but not the wisdom to walk it out perfectly. Perhaps some of you are still stumbling in such a situation even now. But he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, we can ask God. And he will give abundantly. I don't want to parlay into the future from a sense of fragmentation, from fissures that are expanding between us. I want to parlay from a renewed consolidation, a renewed unity. Coordination and power. The Lord showed me recently that we need to rediscover the proper pattern and function between a diaconate and the fivefold ministry. That we have discovered the proper coordination between individual deacons, but we haven't discovered the full functioning pattern of God for how a diaconate relates to the fivefold ministry and brings to pass the faithful execution of a vision that is confirmed to be from God. This is a priority. It is at the top of my list of things I'm going to give my time to, my prayer to, my study to, my energy to. Somebody says to me, well, that's just a more complicated way of doing it. Look, all we have to do is this, this, that, and the other, and we can come up with a quicker success story. We don't need one-off success stories. We don't need test tube babies. We need an organic healing to the body of Christ that has the chance of reproducing itself into the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and tenth generation generation. We are familiar with those who started out well with a true treasure from God and 500 years later they are dead. They are joyless. They are powerless. They are directionless. And soon they will be airless. We don't need to repeat the failures of the past. We need to recognize that the pattern must come from God. And we really already have it, but we haven't worked out what it looks like in real life. And if we get this, if God is merciful and we get a victory on this, you're going to know it. It's going to be evidenced by undeniable fruit that says, surely, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And some will sit back and say, oh, I dare not even try because I remember when God gave us a vision and it didn't turn out so great and I'm so glad it ended. And others will say, I know the ark is parked at Obed-Edom's house, but I also know he promised that it should come all the way back to Jerusalem. And I know we didn't get it the first time around, but the vision is from God. And we'll give ourselves no rest, and we'll give the Lord no rest until he brings about Jerusalem as the praise of the whole earth, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a blazing torch you're looking for a reason to pull your faith from the great promise experiment whatever you want to call it of the church oh there are plenty of reasons but the reason you should keep it in there is because it's the only entity on earth guaranteed to survive and withstand the power of hell and you better know that if it's the only entity that's going to withstand the power of hell then it's the prime target on hell's agendas list And you better be sure that the wisdom that's at work in your own head hasn't been deployed by the wrong power to tear apart the one thing that can withstand its evil in the days that are coming. We need to trust God. We need to believe God. We need to stretch our faith more than we've ever stretched it before. And we need to say, God, we're going to give ourselves to bring Him back. The pattern of God, the glory of God, the presence of God into every sphere where you have told us to conquer. Isn't that what he says in Ephesians 1.10? That he will bring together all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. We don't just want him to reign in the things of heaven. The things of faith and the things of baptism and the things of the Holy Ghost and the things of this and all these spiritual things. We want Him to reign on the things on earth too. Amen. We want to bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. We want to bring every action into obedience to Jesus. We want all of our lives to be part of this kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen. It's happening. This is, this is an exciting time. Guard your heart against the wrong kind of wisdom. Prepare your heart against the right kind of childish trust that is the wisdom of God. And let's move forward. Isn't that what he said to the children of Israel when they got to the Red Sea and it wasn't divided yet? And Pharaoh's beaten down against them. Chariots. Power, most powerful army in all the world. And Israel's standing there looking at an ocean. And the Lord says to Moses, tell the children of Israel, move forward. Huh? That's the wisdom of God. Move toward an impossibility. Move on the word of the God who divides the waters. Move on the word of the one who alone knows that this impossibility is actually not an impossibility, just an opportunity to show his power. Okay, I want to stop with just one thing. I think there's two things that are most likely to frustrate the coming together. God's not as interested in what you can do as a one-off success as he is in what we can do when we come together. Work your tail off. Show us what you can do. Wow! But that doesn't excite us or the Lord as much as what we can do when the gifts start to come together. And I'm telling you, one-off successes and private successes are faster achieved, faster achieved than the unity of the body. But the unity of the body is worth it because it says a pattern has been given that is not dependent on one man and will not die with that one man, but will carry on from generation to generation until the Lord comes. So, two of the big things that are going to try to act like wisdom and divide you from your brothers are envy and fear. I'm not going to spend a whole meeting talking about envy because you already know they killed Jesus because of envy, and Paul tried to kill David because of envy. And envy makes dummies out of the wisest people you know. Envy shoots both of your feet with a double-barrel shotgun. Envy makes fools of us all. It fails to see a blessing, a help, an answer, and it only sees a threat, a replacement, a danger. Stupid envy. Envy. Poor Cain went and built a city to hide from his envy, or at least the judgment that his envy released. Envy. Second one is fear. What is the most often repeated uh, command in all of Scripture? I believe it's something like 360 something times, as if God put one in there for every day of the year. Do not fear. So the Lord knows how freaked out we get. And every time he meets with us, he says, stop it. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong about this freak out. He says, stop it. Just quit it. Fear, anxiety has to do with losing control. But if you've already surrendered control... Losing control is no surprise. It's just a reminder that He is God and you're not. Beat the devil to the punch and give to God what you're afraid of losing. Surrender to God what you're afraid of losing. Amen? So, envy's a big one, fear's another one. Fear is often going to combine with envy, they're going to hold hands and try to knock you out. Are you a gifted brother? Of course you are. Every single one of us has a vital place in the body of Christ that nobody can fill but us. Are you a gifted sister? Do you have a place of responsibility to advance the kingdom of God? Well fear and envy are going to crawl on your back like two raccoons and try to stop you. And they're usually going to work together. Trading like ventriloquist, trading lines. One of the biggest reasons I see people not inherit the promise of God is that they grasp for it. That word grasp comes from Philippians, doesn't it? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what it says? He starts off like this. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make, my, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Sounds like our meeting, right? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests only, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not grasp for his rights as God. Or this one says, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being... The hands that clean are the hands that repel. Whereas the one who humbles himself, the one who lets go, the one who trusts, the one who surrenders, the power is his. Jesus humbled himself, therefore God highly exalted him. What he's talking about here is the shift from kenosis to glorification. When Jesus lived upon the earth, he was God. And yet he lived depriving himself, not grasping at his divine rights, but living under the limited budget of a human being. And only in glorification did God highly exalt him until he took that place, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Amen. The King of kings and Lord of lords the almighty the great I am but he did it by not grasping for it think of how Jesus stood in his baptism and we are told that the Holy Spirit lighted upon him like a dove it wasn't like this You got it got my dove this will never work If your fearful, envious, selfish hands are going to grasp for your place and secure your place, I can assure you, you're never going to find your place. But if you can stop it and just love, you're going to come into your place before you even know how to name it. Amen? Amen? the Zach recently I have this picture of somebody standing in water uh, up to their chest and and they're trying to get this big beach ball of promise that someone's rolling their way through the water but their flapping efforts are so great that the beach ball comes, rolls toward them And they flap for it, and it goes the other way. And then it comes back toward them, and they flap for it, and they create a current of repulsion. Let's be built together, and let's stop grasping for our rights. Let's stop grasping for our place. Let's stop grasping altogether. Let's fall into the hands of God and trust him. Let's cast our burden on the Lord and know that he cares. Amen. If we can't, we're, we're going to sit there and flap away the very thing we pray for There's no gift from God that you can lose by letting go of it. Did you hear me? By refusing to grip it with the flesh. I remember I gave this analogy a long time ago, and some of you know it. And you'll remember what I originally gave it about. But it's like somebody says, I know. This is of God that's why I'm holding so tightly to this dream to this gift, this place to this relationship I know it's of God and i like well it, if it's of God every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes from his hand so if it's of God he's holding it And if you let go, it ain't going anywhere. But if you can't let go, you testify against yourself that you don't believe it's God. That if you did let go, it would drop. Whatever you're afraid of losing by letting go isn't of God until you let it go. And then you receive it back from the dead in a figurative sense Or you realize he spared you from judgment and you just called it your dreams. Amen. I feel like the Lord is bringing us into a time of greater unity than we've ever seen. And we are seeing it all over the place. I feel it. I want us to pray and ask God, Lord, if I haven't found my place in your body, would you you give me the grace to be led by your spirit? against my will into your plan. Would you give me the trust to have the wisdom from above that keeps me as the child and you as the guide and the father and just give me the courage to follow where you lead. Would you help me to know that the wisdom that divides is an instrument of the devil who's trying to dismantle the only fortress that can withstand his power. Let's come together. Let's need each other. Let's trust God. Let's trust his design. Let's be part. Let's leave Babylon. Let's quit acting like the hero stories of Shadrach and Daniel are the pinnacle of human existence. And let's talk about Nehemiah a little more and Ezra and Zerubbabel and Jesus and the kingdom that is not of this world that is supposed to come on earth as it is in heaven. Hallelujah. God, help me to find my place. Thank you, Jesus. But, Lord, don't let me grasp for it in Jesus' name. Somebody says, well, you tell me to surrender. I don't know how to surrender. Let go in your head. Let go in your heart. Surrender means admitting you don't know what's best for you. I remember 14 years ago when we suffered a terrible loss and I held it in my arms, lifeless, hopeless. And my dad said to me, son, give him to God. Now that didn't make sense to the flesh because how can I give what's already taken? Oh, believe me, you can and you must. I've seen people have to give up grief. I've seen grief start to kill people who survived. And I've seen the authority of love encourage and allow them to let that grief go. To, in a short, surrender the loss. Now, if God can empower us to surrender the death of a loved one, that he can empower us to surrender those things that we grasp for in this life. And we better know that whatever we don't receive from him, whatever we get by grasping, it is ashes and judgment, death in our mouth. But whatever we receive as a gift, nobody can take that away. Thank you, Jesus.
1: Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings, to serve the King of kings. the King of kings For oh, rise up O oh, men of God His kingdom tarries long Bring in the day to Try.